not everybody is cut out, people with ADHD and stuff. But I think the main thing is that find something that you love doing and do it in this language. Welcome to Noah Kagan Presents. What up, party people? It's your boy, LaCroix, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talk with Guy Sherritt. He isn't a household name, but he created a podcast called Streetwise Hebrew that now has a million downloads. Oh, and by the way, he speaks seven languages fluently. I love his podcast because it's short, funny, and informative, and this is part of our Israeli series. Three things you're going to take away from this episode is, how did Guy take a hobby and turn it into a business with a million downloads? Second, how the F does he know seven languages and ways for yourself to make learning languages easier? And number three, how Israel is different than other countries, including how the country reacts to Guy being gay. We talk about this and a ton more. Enjoy. We are live today from TLV1 in Tel Aviv, the number one podcasting station for Israel for business, personal, pleasure, sexual. And I'm here with the host, Guy Charette, from my new favorite podcast, Streetwise Hebrew. That's correct. Hi there. So maybe taking a step back, how did you get interested in language and how did that lead you to where you are now? Age three, I cannot write yet, and I'm dictating my rhymes and songs in Hebrew to all the family. So language was very dear to me, and I was correcting adults' Hebrew, their grammar, until my parents had to tell me to shut up. I was always interested and fascinated by language. I think working in the media, I was a journalist before as well, was also telling a story using words, which I loved, talking to people, trying to understand what makes them tick. And later on, this kind of convergence that right now I'm doing a podcast talking about language, teaching, but also documenting, talking about grammar, but also about intonations, sounds, songs, what the eyes can say or body language. How did you take your passion and something that you're interested in and then turn that into a career? I was working nine to five. It was in the media sector. At night and the evening, I taught Hebrew foreigners that are based in Tel Aviv. Then I saw 7 p.m. to 11 was more fun than the whole day. The whole energy was channelized to giving someone else pleasure, but not to my project, to my passion. So I decided to flip it, and I decided to embrace the nicheness of me and to do language-related projects. Can you tell us behind the scenes of how Streetwise Hebrew got started and where it is today? So we just celebrated 1 million downloads a few months ago. It started with a show I introduced to TLV1 in English, but about Hebrew and Israel and Israeliness. What have you learned from a million downloads from this whole journey so far? First of all, people are interested in sex. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the sex words, yeah. the sex words episode, we did two of them because we saw that it was 20,000 downloads each for each episode. Sex words one, sex words two. That was one thing I learned. The other thing is everything is personal. The way we learn language, we decipher, we translate. I call it the linguistic inner self. How we learn language. Is it more stuff we see? Do we stop to uh, look at signs? It's stuff we heard today at the restaurant. All these choices of stuff that trigger things is very personal. And you cannot teach Hebrew the same way just like a doctor cannot prescribe the same medication for everybody. I was surprised that you shared that you were gay on the show. 
I actually was like, whoa, I thought it was great. Yeah, I'm just curious your thought on that. And I didn't know if your audience would take it wrong and, and how that's been for you. I mentioned the fact I was gay on the second episode. I don't think I was aware of what I was doing, to be honest. It was just the beginning of the radio station. We had three listeners. And I said, uh, yeah, as a gay man, uh, calling someone bro is an issue because people tell me that I'm trying to be straight, etc., etc. I don't think I thought too much about it, but I'm very happy to share it with my listeners because I feel that like they know me. We are in 2017. It's a bit sad that it's such an issue to mention something which is like could be just like, man, by the way, I'm gay and the weather today in Tel Aviv is amazing. I hope that more and more people around the world will be able to have this luxury of mentioning that they're gay, but then move to talk about other things. And it's not the case. Even walking hand in hand with my husband, I see that like there are lots of decisions also in Israel. We cannot do it everywhere. Not in Paris, not everywhere, not in London, everywhere. This moment of walking hand in hand and then the hands suddenly have to separate. Every gay person knows it. Yeah. Well, hopefully that can be solved. And moving forward, putting it out there like yourself and having more events, things like that, it becomes just part of the norm. I hope so. What have you noticed in making learning effective for people? Yeah, I've been teaching Hebrew for ages, maybe more than 20 years now. Wow. I think that repetition is important, but repetition in context. Let's think of, we just learned Hamuda, Darling Sisters, Sweetie Pie, and we play a bit with the intonation, but we remember the, I was mad at this Hamuda girl. I already have a story. I have a story, the two women at the supermarket fighting with each other, calling Hamuda to each other. It's already anchored somehow in a story I liked or I remember somehow. I can think of the story and say, what was the word she was using to the other? Oh, Hamuda. Yeah, I remember how she said it. Yeah, yeah. And if it's visual, if I saw a clip of it, then it's really enshrined in reality for me. Stuff like that. Like I'm looking for these pegs, these anchors that teach language in context. My cousin is Israeli, and so he was teaching me words. He was showing me sexual stuff, and so he was saying lehikanes, and he was humping a table. And he's like, lehikanes, lehikanes. And so he was humping, which is to come in. <laughs> but now I've never forgotten lehikanes. And it, it's interesting, that was one where like there was an experience. And the other one, I think that you were saying as well, it's a really good point. I was at a restaurant, and I'm in class all day. I'm in Olpan learning Hebrew. The guy at the cashier said, shev or lakachat. And I was like, well, that means sit. So the other one must mean to take. Yeah, la shevet or la kachat, yeah. Yeah, and then that's now where I'm like, la kachat, okay, if I want to take something, and it was in that context, so either hearing it from you or actually experiencing it in the restaurant. Is there any other things that you've noticed that have helped people learn Hebrew? Songs, anything with music in it. Sometimes you can see that it opens the language chakra because people love music, and music can put us together as well, people from different backgrounds and stuff. So anything that you can hum or you can invent your humming is very good for many people, but some people cannot hear it. So some people are tone deaf, which is fine as well. So I work with other things. Another thing is that I have a graffiti tour, which is a walking Hebrew lesson in the street, where we look at textual graffiti, but also at lost pet ads, text on manhole covers from 1937, and try to make sense of it. Then people take photos with a smartphone. Has it been hard for you to stay interested in it? And I ask that because there's certain things that I like marketing for me. I've always just enjoyed how things get found out or how things spread. But sometimes it gets boring. So I guess for you, has language gotten boring? And how have you kept stimulated with either teaching it or learning it for yourself? So two years ago, I started learning Polish at the Polish Cultural Institute here in Tel Aviv. I was not the brightest kid in the class in the Polish lesson, but it was also, you can see how suddenly 
the dull look in the eyes becomes a spark once you use their mother tongue. And most of them were very happy to help me to improve. So these encounters with people is something that always reminds me why I'm doing what I'm doing, especially the experience of four years delivering an episode every week. It wears you out. But this is the energy that I need, these encounters with people or these emails from listeners that tell me I just uh, sang something for the very first time in Hebrew. So for people wanting to start a language, do you have any recommendations of how to get started? I think there are a few channels. One channel could be to go to a language lesson, language class, and do it the right way. Not everybody is cut out, people with ADHD and stuff. But I think the main thing is that find something that you love doing and do it in this language. For example, I love planes, aviation, new routes, the new 787s and stuff. Reading about these things in Polish, that's my thing. Because already I'm interested. There are photos of airplanes. So I think that if you love reggae music and you learn Hebrew, find a reggae music blog in Hebrew. I think that's a really great point. One is like, have a purpose for it. So for me, I wanted to come to Israel. And so that gave me great motivation to stick with it for the past year. And now I'm in Israel using the Hebrew I've been learning. The second thing is, what does fluency mean? And so for Hebrew, I don't need to know every single word, but I like the slow process of being able to converse with people like, hey, I want this bread, or how much is this, or I need to go here. And fluency is, for me, a conversation. For you with all the languages, what is the most dreaded language to learn? Like, is there like the one, like, oh, that's the toughest that you would think of? Polish. Mandarin, which I studied, and Thai are tonal. You can sing the syllables and you're fine, but the grammar is very easy. In Polish, you learn for two years and you still can make stupid mistakes in sentences like, I eat an apple, because you have to know how the word apple is declined when you eat it, when you talk to an apple, when you find a worm inside an apple, or when you think highly of an apple. So the apple will change, the ending, the suffix will change. I've never met a language that behaves in such a way where you are so beginner after a year, two years, even three years. So with Polish for yourself, how have you persisted? Like, how are you studying it and learning it? So I'm working more on French these days, rejuvenating my French because my husband is French and we got married just a few months ago. We use English between us, but with his family, it's only French because French people, the older generation doesn't speak so much English. And it's very good for me. It's fun to learn and relearn. Well, so how have you gone about learning it or relearning it? So, for example, I watched a debate between uh, Macron and uh, Marine Le Pen for three hours uh, with pauses for dictionary and rewinding and talking to my husband about it. You know, when you're interested, half of the job is already done because I really want to know what you told him right now that all the newspapers wrote about. So I'm already curious. I'm there. Now the grammar and the structure will follow suit later on. When I was learning Spanish, people told me to get Mafalda which is uh, comic books for kindergarten kids. And that was fun. It was interesting to read these stories. And I was like, well, what is this word? And then I go look it up. And in Hebrew, it's been a TV show, Fauda. So I've been watching every episode and I just, now I'm going to start re-watching it to say, like, you can kind of get the gist, but what are the words? And let me go and not just see, go in and just learn what they're saying. So what I like about Israeli TV is that they are made by law putting subtitles in Hebrew for the deaf. Oh, interesting. So if you get a copy or you watch it online with the Hebrew subtitles, so Hebrew spoken, but also seen, this is how I learned English. We watched uh, Steve Austin, the $6 million man in the, in the 70s and 80s with Hebrew subtitles. So I think that the subtitles helped me a lot because, you know, when you were a kid, you start reading, 
it's in front of your eyes. You can't ignore it, right? We, we have to read. Our brain takes it in and we listen and we hear. So this connection, these connections are, are amazing for us. If everyone listening could learn one Hebrew word, what word would you want to teach them? Maybe dai, daledyud, D-A-I, because there are so many ways to use it in different intonation. Dai means enough, but it means also get out of here. Like you tell me you're going to the Caribbean tomorrow and I'm like, die. Or you can just say it when someone is pouring milk and you're like, okay, die, toda. Like, enough, thanks. What other Israeli nuances do most people not know or it's different in Israel than the rest of the world? I think uh, the word bevakasha, which means please, we don't use it so much. My feeling is that we express politeness with intonation more than with words. So for example, ani rotze cappuccino, I want cappuccino, literally, would be translated as, I'd like a cappuccino, please. We didn't say would or could, and we didn't say please, but it's implied. I remember I ordered once a juice, and I said, uh, and the girl was like, okay, I'll give it to you. Like, no need to use these kind of big cannons, but usually we don't use the word please in Hebrew. Another one would be... Um, all the could you, would you, would it be possible to, especially after spending a few days in London, so sorry to bother you, must be disturbing you, but all these things, we would use probably one word instead of a sentence. For example, mamash slicha, really sorry, comma, and then you say what you want to say to disturb. Slicha, and then slicha mini, sorry, excuse me. Is there any nuances just culturally? Because actually noticing and learning the language, one thing I've noticed is that how much it's limiting because I can't really speak fully, so I can't say all the things I want. But also the language kind of implies that some people think Israelis are cheap or they think Israelis are rude when it's actually just inherent in the language. Like they just don't have the please word as common as in other languages. I think that we don't have also the patience in going through a whole sentence or two to saying so sorry to bother you, etc., etc. For example, one of the nuances I know I noticed and now living with my husband, who is very French, side by side, is that when we end a meeting or a session, we just say yalla bye. Yalla being okay, and then bye, goodbye. That's it. That was the ending part. While in French, they would be like, Thank you so much for having me for a meal. We should do it again. Let's be in touch and maybe Tuesday, Wednesday next week. And really, it was lovely, especially the marshmallows at the end. Oh, wow, I loved it. You're an amazing host. Really, really. Thank you so much. So we'll be in touch. So that was, I don't know, 17 seconds for Israelis. You know, you could shave, you could uh, brush your teeth. You could use these 17 seconds to invent something. In the French culture, we are considered abrupt, rude, aggressive why do you think Israelis are abrupt like that? Why do you think that was created in the culture or became part of the culture of who Israelis are? There is something very condensed, short in Semitic languages where one word is usually a few words in English. For example, did I wake you up? Did I wake you up? Five words in English are two in Hebrew. So we can actually pack a lot of information into one or two syllable, which we love. Also, it's a young state with no protocol yet. If you compare it to the French civilization with all the details and the beautiful ornaments and decoration and music and culture and art, Israel is still finding its way. We don't even stable, have stable borders. Our language was taught very quickly to masses of immigrants from all over the world. What are other one or two off-the-beaten-path things in Tel Aviv or Israel that you always take friends or family? 
I think that going to Mitzper Ramon, to the crater, it's a special place, huge crater, amazing stars at night, doesn't really um, resemble anything else and has a special kind of silence of the desert, which I love. Another thing is anything with beach. I love the Mediterranean. Just walking, walking on the coast of the Mediterranean, sunset. I was actually joking with someone, they're like, what's Tel Aviv like? And I said, well, it's very similar to Venice Beach. There's a bunch of Jews and you're on a great beach. This place, it's amazing. And it's one of these things where I can see it getting more crowded every year that I'm coming here. Thanks for having me today. Thank you, Guy Charette, for having us on the Noah Kagan Presents podcast. Check out Streetwise Hebrew. Thank you for um, TLV1.FM, the number one podcast station in Israel. Go check out Guy's Graffiti Street Tour. It's going to be at streetwisehebrew.com. You can go find all the information about that. Go give Guy some love on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, Grinder, all the places. Grinder is okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> well, that's a wrap. I hope you learned some lessons from Guy for your own idea, podcast, business, or learning a language. Quick favor before you go, check out Guy's podcast at streetwisehebrew.com. You'll learn about Israel, my people, language learning, and a bunch more. Have a special day! Who's your favorite Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle? <laughs>